Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. We're in the Gospel of Luke, if you want to turn there. Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. I'm going to start reading at verse 29. Chapter 5, verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Good morning, family. It's good to see you all this morning. My name's Bradley. If you don't know, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an honor to be able to open the word with you this morning. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Jesus, our assurance, our blessed assurance is not in that you came to affirm us. It's that you came to transform us. And sometimes getting to that assurance is a bit painful because you caused crisis in order to help us see that. You, you disrupt our norms. You disrupt our comfort zones. You disrupt what seems right and good at the time in order to bring us into greater trust and confidence in you. And so, Lord, I'm thankful that you didn't just come and affirm me in my natural state, but you came to transform me and make me a new creation in you. And so, Lord, I pray that today we would receive that good news and hear that good news, and that we would leave here being the transformed people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Amen. Um, 2009... It was a pivotal year for Mary and I. Um, it was the year that my daughter Ella was born. 
Uh, our precious sweet Ella took our family from three to four, and that was a really big deal. Uh, I know some of you have like 27 children, and it's like, that's, that's no, but that, that was a big deal for us. We love sweet Ella, uh, but our family went from three to four, and that was a big deal. Um, it was also the year that this church really began to grow for the first time. It was like we had a, we had a growth spurt all of a sudden, and some of y'all are here that came at that that point. I remember um, we were in the hospital the weekend Ella was born on a Sunday. My dad called me and said, we're packed. We're bringing out chairs. Uh, and it was just this first kind of significant growth spurt that this church experienced since we had come to pastor. So 2009 was a big year. And I remember as all these incredible things were happening, our family has grown, our church is growing. We were very excited, and we began to work really, really hard at both, at church and at home. We, we were doing everything we could, working long hours at the church to pastor this growing congregation, and we very much had a sense of being blessed in that. Like, this is awesome. The Lord is blessing our church and adding people to our number, and so let's be faithful and do everything we can, discipling, pastoring, teaching, counseling, outreach. We did everything that we knew to do that we thought was right and good for the church. Same was true of our family. You know, you know what it's like when you are new parents, many of you do, and you're, you're trying to figure out what to do with these little lives that have been entrusted to you. What kind of parents are we going to be? What kind of children do we want to raise? What's our household going to be like now that we have these little people that are a part of our lives and we're responsible for them? We're doing all the right things. And, and I would say that at least initially for a while, there was a lot of joy in that. A lot of sacrifice, but a lot of joy. But there was a problem brewing. Something was stirring underneath the surface of all these good things that we were doing, all the good and right efforts we were making at home and at church. There was a problem, and we didn't see it, not at first. In fact, if you had been in relationship with us at that time and been very close to Mary and I, and if you had even pointed it out, you saw it, I don't know that we would have acknowledged it even. But I'll never forget the day Mary looked at me and she said these words. She said, we've lost it. You know, if you don't know much about Mary and I, we've been married almost 22 years, about a month shy of that. And I don't struggle to like my wife. We, we have a, we, you know, there's a lot of things that you could point to in my life that maybe need to be tweaked and this and that, but we have a good marriage. And we had always had just a really strong sense of affection for each other and joy being together. But she looked, when she looked at me and said, we've lost it, my initial response was defensive. What are you talking about, we've lost it? What do you, I don't know. She said, and then she followed it up with this, we've lost our spark. And suddenly it became clear to me that in all of the good we were doing and all of the efforts that we were making with a growing church and a growing family, what we had neglected in the process was each other. And it was so clear, it was a crisis moment. And by crisis moment, I don't mean that something tragic had happened necessarily. What I mean by crisis moment, you know this, is when you find yourself at a place where you know something has to change. Things cannot keep going in the direction they're going. We've got to change. But I remember that helpless feeling, and you felt this too. Something needs to change, but I just don't see how. 
How can it change when we've got these little people at home and we've got a growing church? We're doing all we can. How are we going to change? But we knew we had to change. And I'm glad to tell you that after a lot of prayer and conversation, the Lord helped us so sweetly and tremendously. We, we, we began to dial back our hectic schedule as much as we possibly could. We asked the Lord for courage to say no. <laughs> That's a great prayer to pray, by the way. Sometimes you just need to say no. The Lord helped us with that, and then we implemented an ironclad date night every week. I think it was on Thursday nights, and that was just not negotiable. We were not doing anything else on Thursday night except throwing the kids in the bed and threatening their lives if they came out of that room. <laughs> and we would make dinner together, light some candles, and we had time for just she and I because we couldn't afford to go out and hire babysitters. So that's what we did was at-home date nights, and the Lord helped us rekindle our spark, but it was a crisis moment. Something had to change. If we wanted a growing, thriving, healthy marriage, something had to change. And I thank God for that crisis moment. You've had crisis moments like that. But what does all that have to do with our text in Luke? This is a crisis moment. This is a crisis moment in the early days, weeks, months, years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it's a crisis moment between him and the Pharisees and scribes. And, you know, it's, again, it's not because something tragic has happened, but there's a sequence of events here that are so significant that both Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this sequence of events in the exact same order, which says to me, this was pivotal. This stood out. You know, it was John that wrote and said, if we wrote down everything Jesus said and did, the world couldn't contain the book. So there was a lot of stuff that probably happened that we don't know about. But this sequence is in three of the four Gospels in the exact same order. It's huge. It's important. Here's what I see. Jesus is causing crisis. He's causing it. And that might jostle your soul a little bit, but let's ask the question, why? Why would Jesus cause crisis? Is he trying to pick a fight? Is he trying to just make people upset to watch them squirm? What's he doing? Verse 29 again. And Levi, that's Matthew, he's called Levi the tax collector to follow him. And so Levi th throws a party. Gave him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others. That word could also be translated sinners. Reclining at the table with them, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I know we talked about this last week, but let's think a little bit deeper about what's the Pharisees' problem right here. We know ultimately how things are going to go down between Jesus and the Pharisees, right? And because of that, because we know the, the tension and the conflict that's ultimately going to lead to them wanting to kill him, we often picture the Pharisees as sort of messengers of Satan dressed up for church, right? That's how we think of them, that their attitude is always anti-Jesus. But I don't think that's what Luke intends us to conclude right here, right? The Pharisees had their problems for sure, but their primary role in Jewish society was twofold. They, they were charged with the preservation of the worship of Yahweh. They're the arch conservatives 
of the day. The, the, Israel had very much a two-party system, and I'm not commenting about our political system at all when I say this, but there was very much a conservative and liberal group in Israel. The Pharisees were the conservatives, the Sadducees were the liberals, the Rome sympathizers. The other facet of the Pharisees' role, in addition to preservation of the worship of Yahweh, was the prayerful, watchful anticipation of Messiah's coming, which they thought was going to be result in the liberation of Israel from Rome and Roman oppression and put Israel back on the map. That's their thought. They're the purists. They're the Jews of the Jews. So there's every reason, even though we know that their sense of self-righteousness, which was being incubated in their traditions, which we're going to talk more about that in a minute, that's ultimately going to be their undoing, but there's every reason to give them the benefit of the doubt at this point that they're excited about Jesus. And here's why I say that. Back up to verse 26, Luke chapter 5. This is after Jesus heals the paralytic. You remember the guy that was let down? They opened up the roof, let him down. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. They didn't believe he had the authority to do that. So he says, all right, rise, take up your mat and walk. And then here was the result of that miracle. Verse 26, and amazement seized them all. The all includes Pharisees and scribes that were in this house. They're all, Pharisees and scribes, amazed and glorifying God and filled with all saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. I think the Pharisees are excited about Jesus. They're maybe questioning some things in their mind. I don't think that there's necessarily a well-developed thought in their head that he might be the Messiah. Maybe, but I doubt it. Just remember that Israel hasn't had a prophetic voice in over 400 years. And here, here shows up a guy who's got authoritative teaching. He's got authority over disease, authority over demons, and even authority to forgive sins on earth. I think they might just be simply going... Here's a man with divine authority. God has sent him to Israel. This is exciting. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And he came to him and said this, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you have to be a man sent from God. Because nobody could do the stuff you're doing if he wasn't. I think that was the general sentiment of the Pharisees at this point. But here's the problem. Get this. When they see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, this is their response. We, we don't do that. Jesus, we're impressed with you. We're excited about the possibility of God sending us a new voice. But if that's who you are, we're the religious elite. We're the ones charged with the preservation of Yahweh and the watchful anticipation of Messiah. And so if you are who we think you might be, why are you doing what we don't do? We don't do this. I think it's a genuine question. And here's Jesus' response, verse 31. 
Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A little biblical interpretation, helpful point. Don't over-theologize Jesus' statements. We all make this mistake, we tend to do it, is we take everything we know from the Gospels as a whole, even the letters of Paul and Peter, and we read all that theology into one statement Jesus makes. And I think that's why people get frustrated with their Bibles and give up. When you read your Bibles, generally speaking, I might even say all the time, the best interpretation is the simplest one. So let me give you what I don't think Jesus is saying in this little response, and then I'll tell you what I think he is saying. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying to them in his little metaphor about a physician coming for the sick, not the well, that he is the Messiah. I don't think he's making a divine claim. Is he the Messiah? Yes. Is he the second person of the triune God? Yes. But I don't think he's, try- he's expecting them to understand that at this point. That's not what he's doing. He's not making a divine claim. Neither is he being coy with them in sort of a passive-aggressive way to say, you think you're righteous, but you're really not. You're sinners too. I don't think he's calling them out in some indirect, cryptic way for their own sin. I don't think that's his point. Are they sinners? Yes. Are they clouded in self-righteousness? Yes. But I don't think he's asking them to come that far. Here's all I think he's saying to the que- answer the question, why are you doing what we do not do? It's this simple. These people need help, and I can help them. I think it's that simple. You wonder why I'm doing something that you don't do, namely eating with sinners and tax collectors. Here's why. They need my help. And you've seen that I can help people, haven't you? You know, I've, I healed a leper. I caused a lame man to walk. I've healed a mother-in-law with a fever. I've cast out demons. And I've even shown you I have authority on earth to forgive sins. So can you open up your mind to the fact that I can help people that you think you shouldn't be around? Because they need my help. I think it's that simple. Verse 33. We're trying to understand this crisis moment between Jesus and the Pharisees. And they said to him, this is right in the same conversation it seems, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. This is a very similar question to the first. The first is, Jesus, why are you doing what we do not do? And here's the second question. Jesus, why are you not doing what we do? We fast, your disciples don't. Why Why are you not doing what we do? Here's the interesting thing. There was one commandment. There's only one commandment in the Old Testament for fasting. One. And it was a one-day fast on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. That is the only command in the Old Testament to fast. All other fasting, excuse me, in the Old Testament was Voluntary. We know there are lots of other examples of fasting, but that was all voluntary. You remember the Daniel fast, right? 
Three weeks, only fruits and vegetables. Mary and I did that one time. And we gave up coffee. And it was horrible. (laughs) I didn't get any spiritual. In fact, I think I was less spiritual (laughs) as a result. (laughs) All fasting was voluntary. But the Pharisees, I think perhaps with initially good motives. I know I'm giving them a lot of benefit of the doubt here, but just go with me on this. I think perhaps for the right motives, they went beyond the law of God and tacked on what was known as the traditions of the Pharisees. So in the case, example of fasting, there's only one command, fast one day, day of atonement, Yom Kippur. They had actually gone so far as to levy a required fast for all Jews twice a week, every week for at least a portion of the day. And this was their problem, is that they they would go beyond the law of God and ultimately end up missing the heart of God. And they even told people that fasting in this way would merit them favor with God. Little parentheses on fasting. Fasting is a great spiritual discipline, but don't ever make the mistake of thinking that if you fast, it's going to somehow get God to do stuff for you that he wouldn't otherwise do. That is not the point of fasting at all. The point of fasting, I think, is really seen in Jesus' temptation. You remember when Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread? What did he say? Man does not live by bread alone. The point of fasting is to remind your flesh it's not in charge. That's really the point. In order to go deeper in dependence on the Lord, deeper in satisfaction and joy in the Lord. You know when the gas shortage happened this week? <laughs> Everybody, Emily texted Mary, um, I guess it was late Monday night, and she's like, what's going on at the gas pump? Because you know, Mary and I don't watch the news anymore. And so we, I knew there was something going on with the pipeline, but I, I, didn't, I didn't have any idea we were... F- apparently going to face a gas shortage and people were lining up with trash bags and plastic tins filling up there, you know, and uh, I I didn't go out Monday night and get gas, but I do remember the next morning I was praying and I wasn't, wasn't overly anxious about this at all, but I was just praying in the morning on Tuesday. And as I was praying, the Lord's prayer just began to reverberate in my soul. And I just began to say it out loud Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us today our daily bread. So a gas shortage reminded me that pipeline is not my source. My legs work and I'm seven miles from my office. If I have to walk, I'm okay. Right? Fasting kind of helps us get back there. You see what I'm saying? The Pharisees had gone way beyond that. They're zealous, but listen to me, misguided zeal will always get you in trouble. Zeal untethered from this will get even people who are desiring to be the most spiritual in trouble, and that's what's happening for the Pharisees. Yet in spite of all of that, Jesus doesn't ding them. 
When they questioned him about fasting, he could have said, look, you sorry so-and-sos, you have gone way beyond the command of God and you've levied all this fasting tradition on God's people. You've missed the heart of God and the law. Y'all need to straighten up and fly right. It's not what he says. Look what he says. Verse 34. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That doesn't make sense. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Again, I'm not inclined to overread that. A lot of people will come to that and go, okay, Jesus is making a cryptic reference to himself as the groom, the bridegroom. So this is some sort of messianic claim, and he's indirectly covertly referring to his disciples and and even maybe the people that he's eating with, sinners and tax collectors, as the future bride of Christ for which he's going to die for their sins and save them. I don't think he's saying any of that. I think his answer is this simple. Look, guys, Pharisees, you know this. You don't fast at a wedding. That would be inappropriate. You know, weddings in this day went on for a week. It was a P-A-R-T-Y, right? Party. That wasn't that funny, but I appreciate it nonetheless. He's like, you don't, you don't, it would be inappropriate, Pharisees. And, and, and I think you can maybe read a little bit between the lines. Pharisees, as spiritual as you are, as pious as you are, as holy as you are, as devout as you are, even you don't go to a wedding and fast. That would be inappropriate. You go to a wedding and you feast. Because that's what you do at weddings, right? A wedding is a time to feast and celebrate. It's not a time for fasting. So what he's saying to them is, Pharisees, listen, my disciples aren't fasting because now is the time to feast and celebrate. And so the question in all our minds is the right one. Okay, Jesus, if that's true, why? Why is now the time to feast and not fast? Why is now the time to celebrate, not to deny ourselves? You with me? That's the question. He gives the answer, verse 36. So he also told them this parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. That's very simple, right? I don't know how much they paid attention to this one. But the, the illustration is very simple. You don't take an, a, a, a new piece of garment from a new garment and try to sew it on the old because it will, A, not work, and B, it won't match. Nobody does that. So I don't know how much they paid attention to that illustration, but I guarantee you this one got their, their attention. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Their wine was very important. Garments, whatever. But the wine, huge deal. So they're, they're locked in. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. They would have totally got this. And you might know this. 
wineskins were made out of goat or sheepskin. And when they put new wine into a new wineskin, as the fermentation process would begin, the wineskin would expand as the gases were released during the fermentation process. So an old wineskin would be stretched out. So if you took new wine and put it in an old, wine, old stretched out wineskin, as the new wine starts to ferment, the old wineskin that's already stretched out is not going to be able to handle the gases and the expansion, and it's going to burst, and you're going to lose the wine. You with me? It's a very simple illustration. This is a crisis moment because here's what Jesus is clearly saying to them. Clearly, it's plain as day. Can you open your minds, Pharisees, to the fact that I'm doing something new? Can you open your mind to that? It's new, and it's not going to fit in your old paradigm. And here's the challenge with the old paradigm. If you think Jesus includes this in the metaphor, in the little parable, nobody goes for the new wine when the old's still available, right? Why? The old wine's better. The aged wine is better. That's what we want. That's what we like. We want the aged wine, not the new wine. So isn't it true that it's so easy for us to get in these patterns of thought, to have these paradigms, these little comfort zones that we like and we don't want to mess with. But Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, look, I'm doing something new and it's not going to fit in your old wineskin. And I don't want us to miss the kind, compassionate, gracious posture of Jesus right here to them. Because here's the reality He's not doing anything new. Nothing, here's what I mean by that. It might, it might be new in one sense, but it's not new in the sense that it's novel or it's out of sync with the law and the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God had promised and commanded and said and done in the Old Testament. So in a very real sense, what Jesus is doing is not new. But in the Pharisees' minds it is. It is new and out of sync with their traditions, with all the things they've levied on top of the law of God, all the things that they've you know, layered on top of it and called people beyond it and even missed the heart of God in the original law. It is new and out of sync, but he's not expecting them to get that. All he's simply saying to them is, look, could you open your minds to see that I'm doing something new? Jesus has to shatter their paradigms in order to invite them to come further with him. I think they're with him up to this point. Many of them are not going to be with him after this, especially when we get to the Sabbath. The very same kind of challenge here with their thinking about Sabbath happens in chapter 6. And we're going to get to that. But from this point on, they're not with him. I think they are with him up to this point. But he is not affirming their pattern of thinking and their traditions and the way they expect God to work, which is really out of sync with the Old Testament, though they believe that it's in sync. And so he's got to shatter their paradigms in order for them to come a little further. This is too much for them that Jesus is causing crisis in their traditions. But Jesus is a crisis-causing Savior. 
isn't he? Those of you that have walked with the Lord for a while, you know this. He always, always, this, this seems so simple, but this just, this just overwhelms me to think about. He always sees me and my world and the world rightly. Always. But I don't. It's so simple, but yet it's so profound. I think in 2009 that I'm doing all the right things. Put yourself in my shoes. I'm a young pastor. I'm barely 30 years old. And my church is growing. And so is my family. And here's my instinct. Just work harder, Bradley. Do more. Work harder. You gotta, you gotta be responsible for all that the Lord's entrusted to you. And I thought, man, I thought I was seeing my world rightly. I thought I was thinking rightly. I was convinced. And the scary thing was I was praying more at that time in my life probably than at any other. God, help me raise these kids. God, help me lead this church. God, help me, help me, help me, help me. It wasn't for a lack of prayer. It wasn't for a lack of worship. I was in church every Sunday. I mean, I was paid to be here, but my goodness. <laughs> but I didn't see my world rightly. And Jesus had to cause a crisis. It's emotional because it, it, it scares me to think about it because of how quickly my thinking can get off. But then there's so much comfort and peace and assurance. You remember what, what I prayed at the beginning of this is that Jesus didn't come to affirm us. That's, I think that's how people think is that Jesus is just this affirming nice guy who comes and says, you know what, you're good and I love you and you just keep doing you, man. No. <laughs> and thank God he doesn't do that. Because I don't see my world rightly, but he always does. And when my thinking is out of sync with his, he causes crisis. And sometimes that's painful. In fact, all the time it's painful. Initially. But being the kind and gracious Savior that, he's, that he is, sometimes he, and, and, and again, this is a parable, it's a metaphor, so we can kind of, we can flex within it a little bit. Sometimes he'll let our old wineskins burst so that we go, oh, you know what? That's not going to work. If I'm going to embrace the new wine that he's offering me, if I'm going to receive it, then I got I to let him give me a new wineskin. I like the old. You know, I, the older I get, the more routine I get. And I like my routine, and I don't like it interrupted, right? We like the old. And so it's hard to, on our own, in fact, sometimes it's impossible, I think, to go, you know what, I need a whole new wineskin. I, 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 can't, I can't sew a new patch of cloth on this old garment. God's doing something new. 
And I need to let him do that. I need to give in to that. Following Jesus, listen, following Jesus is a lifelong journey with a crisis-causing Savior who continually leads us to surrender life on our terms in order to embrace life with him on his terms. I'll say that again. Following Jesus is a lifelong journey with a crisis-causing Savior who will continually lead us to surrender life on our terms in order to embrace life with him on his terms. And we know this, his terms are far better. You know, I, um, as I was wrapping up my sermon preparation this week, I, um, I just started to think back over my life. And I'm not an old man, but, you know, I'm kind of getting there. And uh, I can't think of one regret that I have, not one, where in the crisis moments, despite my initial response of, no, I don't want to let go of that. I don't want that paradigm to be shattered. You know, you know what I mean? It's that initial defensive response of just like, no, Lord, I, what's going on? What are you doing? And I've got all these questions and doubts. I can't think of one regret where in the midst of that, with the Lord's help, the help of his word, spirit, I said, look, Lord, I don't know what you're up to, but I'm going to patiently wait on you. Because I know whatever you've begun in me, you're going to be faithful to complete. I can't think of one regret that I have from waiting on the Lord. But I can think of a whole bunch of them. A whole bunch of them. That in those moments, instead of patiently waiting on him and surrendering him in my doubts and fears and questions, I tried to take matters into my own hands and hold on to what I thought I needed and wanted. What I thought was right and good at the time. And sometimes what I think is right and good is not necessarily a moral decision. It's just simply an, a, 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 it's an issue of the process of sanctification that he's doing in me. Bradley, I'm calling you further. Calling you deeper. I'm making you more like me. I'm conforming you to my image. I'm mindful of things in your marriage that you don't see. I'm going to call you out of self-pity when you're suffering and in pain and into God-glorifying joy. I'm calling you deeper. Things aren't going your way. I'm going to call you away from anxiety to depend on me for peace. You've got a conflict in some relationship or another, I'm going to call you out of pride and entitlement and into humility and meekness. You see what I'm saying? The Lord just causes these crises, and sometimes we push back, and when we push back and hold on, a lot of times we end up in regret. Peter did that. Today, let's give in. Feels like every sermon I preach lately ends with just give in to Jesus. <laughs> but isn't that the point? Isn't that what worship is? 
Isn't it what being a Christian and a Christ follower is all about? My life's not my own. Here's all of me. Embrace the crisis. Show me what you're doing. Teach me, and I'll wait for you. And in the end, you'll get new wine. Let's pray. I don't know, Lord, I feel this sense of, like, I don't want this morning to end. I don't want to, I don't want to leave and scatter, because it's just so sweet to be together as your people and talk about you, to see the loving, compassionate, crisis-causing way that you lead us. It's all of that. It's not some of that. It's all of that. And it's so sweet to savor that with my brothers and sisters. And so I, I, I don't want to leave this moment. I don't want to go out into our worlds and into our lives and our Mondays and Tuesdays and forget this. I don't don't want to leave this. But you are sending us out as light in a dark world. You, you, You send us as your people. You send us salt and light. We live differently. We think differently. And you're going to continually lead us to be that different peculiar kind of people. And so today, we say yes and amen to you, our crisis-causing Savior. And we ask, Lord, that as we leave here and as we, we begin to navigate life with you, I pray, Lord, that we would not forget that a, a, being a Christian is a lifelong journey with you of surrendering life on our terms and embracing life with you on yours. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Andy's going to come and close us out. I want to close us out this morning with <clears throat> a prayer of David. Uh, just let this be a blessing over all of you. Um, it's um, out of First Chronicles chapter 29. Um, this is David's coming to the end of his life. Um, and this is his prayer, um, a, a portion of his prayer. Um, I'm going to start with verse 17 of chapter 29. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here, offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. As you leave this place today and go about your week, I pray that our hearts, your hearts and my heart is aimed at God. Be blessed. You're dismissed. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. 
You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.